All right, good morning once again, church family. Uh, as you uh, find your seat, uh, if you would open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. We're continuing our study in, in the Gospel of Mark. We finished chapter 7 um, last week, and, and we began chapter 8. Uh, combined two stories, but now we'll go back and look at the first part of Mark 8 that we had skipped over um, because of the two stories together. Mark chapter 8, this morning we're going to be in verses 1 to 21. The title of the sermon this morning is Prone to Forget. So let's read the text, open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into the sermon this morning. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away... Hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into a boat with his disciples and went into the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning as we look at this text and a story that... um, I know that I, I can relate to so much, and I imagine most of us, if not all of us, can relate to. God, help us to see our hearts here. Help us to see how prone we are to forget. To forget who you are. To forget your power. To forget how you have provided for us time and time again. Lord, help us to see how prone we are to forget. And this morning, God, I pray you would help us to remember As we close out 2023, as we look forward to 2024, God, help us to remember, especially as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, help us to remember, God. 
Help us this year to be a people who are not prone to forget, but a people who are quick, ready to remember the grace of Jesus Christ in our life. I pray this in his name. Amen. As you uh, read this story with me, you may have thought, am I having deja vu? Didn't he already preach on the miracle of the fish and the loaves? I did. But there are two miracles. One with a crowd of 5,000 men and another with a crowd of 4,000 men. I have always loved this second story. I might even probably like it better than the first one because I see human nature, my human nature in it. I see a human nature that is prone to forget. And that's what the sermon is about this morning, about how we are all prone to forget. Let's look at the text this morning, exposition, and then I'll give application. Let's start looking at it section by section. Let's look at verses one to three, where Mark writes, in those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from afar, far away. Now, keep in mind that what's the setting here? That Jesus is in the Decapolis. We saw that last week where he has gone to the Decapolis, which means it's Gentile territory. He's once again in Gentile territory, and a great crowd has gathered around him to hear him, presumably to hear his teaching and to be healed of their infirmities. But after a long day of teaching, the crowds are hungry, as we all get hungry, but they have nothing to eat. There aren't grocery stores on the, on the street corner. There's no 7-Eleven around the corner. And so Jesus has the same reaction to the crowd's hunger as he did in the first story. He has compassion on them. He recognizes that they have been with him for three days now. So presumably for three days, he's been teaching them. They've been following him. They have left their jobs and left their families to go and be with Jesus for three days. And now they have nothing to eat. And Jesus further recognizes that, look, if I send them home, if I tell them, all of you go home to go get food at your house, some of them are going to faint on the way because some of them have come from far away. So in these first three verses, we see two things. A, we see the neediness of the crowds, and B, we see the compassion of Jesus towards this neediness. Look at verse 4. And his disciple answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, I absolutely love this question. I love it. Because when I read this question, it is such a picture of the human heart. Such a picture of human nature. It's as if the disciples were not even present in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus fed 5,000. But they were there. They saw with their own two eyes Jesus take five small barley loaves and two small fish and feed 5,000 men. They saw it. They witnessed it. Now we would expect verse 4 to read we would expect verse 4 to read as such. They're hungry. Well, Lord, let's see how much bread is here. 
let's see how many fish we have. And then you can just multiply it like you did last time. That's how we would expect it to read. But that's not how human nature normally operates, is it? Because human nature is prone to forget. Look at verse 5 to 7. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. Now what I find interesting is that Jesus doesn't rebuke them, at least not yet. He simply asked them, he says, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. Now, in the previous story, a, if you remember, a young boy provided the fish and the loaves. But here it appears the disciples are the ones who provide the fish and the loaves. Now, Jesus does the same thing that he did in the previous story. He directs the crowd to all sit down. He gives thanks to his Father in heaven. He breaks the bread. And he gives it to the disciples. And they are to distribute it to the crowd. Jesus then takes the fish and he says a blessing over the fish. And he gives the fish to the disciples and the disciples are to pass it out to the crowd. Now, lest we think that this means everybody received like a tiny crumb of these seven loaves and everybody received a, just a sliver of these fish, verse 8 clears this up. Look at verse 8 to 10. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people and he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Mark writes, they ate and were satisfied. That word satisfied means to be full. You know how like when you eat and uh, you, you, you can still like, you can eat some and still be hungry and you're like, um, I, I could eat some more. But you know how when you eat, you're like, oh, I can't eat anymore, no more. That's what that word means. They ate and were full. They were so full, they have leftovers. Seven basketfuls of leftovers. Now, did you catch that? They started with seven loaves of bread, and they finished with seven baskets of bread, which means they ended with more than what they started with. Mark tells us that there were about 4,000 there. There's no word for people in the Greek there. It's supplied. It just says there were 4,000. But Matthew writes, those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children, which means this crowd could have been as much as 8,000 to 12,000 people, counting women and children. After they gather the leftovers, Jesus dismisses the crowd and he sends them home. Minds filled, bellies filled. And then once again, Jesus gets into a boat and he goes into the district of Dalmanutha, which is a location that's uncertain. Nobody knows where it is. It, it exists though. Look at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So once again, the Pharisees come and they encounter Jesus and Jesus encounters them. And they begin to argue with Jesus. Now, the word for argue there can mean to simply question. So in theory, they could just be questioning Jesus. But it usually takes the nuance of disputing, debating, arguing. So they get into an argument. Now, what's the nature of their argument? 
They are seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, of course, that raises two questions, doesn't it? Number one, what is a sign from heaven? And number two, what does it mean to test him? What does that mean? Well, a sign from heaven is simply a miracle. That's really what a sign from heaven is, is simply they are asking him, do a miracle. Now, here's the irony. This is the great irony. Jesus had already given them sign after sign after sign after sign. He had already done this. So what are they asking for? They are asking for an on-demand sign at their beckoning on their terms. They are wanting a sign that they dictate. Now why? To test him. What does that mean to test him? They want to put Jesus in their balance. Weigh him. And see if he measures up to their standard. In other words, they said, you do a sign, we'll put you in our balance, and we will decide if you are who you say you are. Look at verse 12 to 13. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. This is now the second time we've seen Jesus sigh. Do you remember, the, we looked at Mark 7, 34, when Jesus encountered the deaf man, he said he sighed. The word that's used there in Mark 7, 34 is stenazo. This is the same word, but with a prefix, anastanazo. It, it means he didn't just sigh, but he deeply sighed, deeply groaned. Mark writes, not only did he deeply sigh, but he deeply sighed in his spirit. So what this means is that Jesus is quite disturbed in his soul. He's disturbed deep down in his soul. And he says to them, why do you seek a sign? Truly I say to you, I will not give you a sign. Now Matthew includes a longer description of the statement. Matthew writes that Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now what's the sign of Jonah? Jesus had earlier explained that just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Meaning that Jesus is saying, look, I will not give you a sign other than one sign. And it's going to be the greatest sign ever given to humanity. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, once again, gets into a boat, leaves them, and goes to the other side of the lake. Look at verses 14 to 16. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Now Mark tells us they had forgotten to bring bread. That wasn't all they forgotten. They also forgot to bring their memories. They had one loaf of bread already with them. It was already in the boat. But they didn't bring enough bread for everybody. 
And so Jesus turns to them in the boat and he cautions them, literally charges them, commands them. He says, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now I want to point out those two verbs there that Jesus uses, watch out and beware. They're important because both of them are commands to see. If you were to translate these words literally, they both are literally translate to see. Jesus is telling them two different ways. See, see. This will be important in just a minute based on what Jesus says. So what are they to watch out for? What are they to beware of? The leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now what is leaven? Well, for all you bakers out there, it is, you know what it is. It's yeast. Yeast used to produce fermentation in dough. Now, Jesus is clearly telling them a parable of some kind. He, this is, I don't know about you, but that's as clear as day that he's telling a parable. It's not as though the Pharisees and Herod have bad yeast. Jesus is not warning them, guys, don't use it. It doesn't work. It doesn't make the bread rise. He's clearly not saying that. Now, it appears to the disciples, they don't recognize that Jesus is telling them a parable. They interpret, I mean, I mean, sorry, they, they, sorry, they recognize that he's telling them a parable, but they interpret it wrongly. You see, Jesus, they think that Jesus is scolding them for not bringing any bread. When Jesus says, beware of the leaven, they probably turn and they, they see they don't have any bread and they're like, oh God, like we didn't bring any bread. Now, how they got from Jesus' statement in verse 15 to be a rebuke for lack of bread is perplexing to say the least. Of course, this raises the question, what did Jesus mean by this statement? When he said, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, what did he mean by that? What did he mean? Matthew attributes it to, to the teaching of the Pharisees. Matthew comes out and says that the leaven of the Pharisees is the teaching of the Pharisees. Luke attributes it to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Luke says that the leaven is the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. I assume Jesus is cautioning them against both of these. Jesus is cautioning the disciples, beware, look out for the teaching of the Pharisees, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and Herod. Look at verse 17 to 21. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? It, now, in response to the disciples' discussion, they begin to have a private discussion among themselves. In response to that, Jesus proceeds to ask them eight, count them eight questions. It is never good when Jesus asks you eight questions. Here they are. Number one, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? This is such a fascinating question. Because Jesus has already fed 5,000 men with five small barley loaves and two small fish. 
and then he did it again. He's already done it. And then he did it again. Fed 4,000 with seven loaves and a few salt smiths. And the disciples, in response to his statement, knowing these two miracles, the disciples are like, oh gosh, we forgot to bring bread, guys. He's upset with us because we didn't bring bread. And Jesus is like, why are you discussing that you didn't bring bread? Two, do you not yet perceive or, or understand? Now, what does that mean when he says, do you not yet? It means Jesus expected them to perceive. He expected them to understand. You see, we could sympathize with their lack of understanding after the first miracle, but after the second? Three, are your hearts hardened? If you remember, this is now the second time that Mark references their hearts being hardened. If you remember in the first miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, right after that, Jesus walked on water. And, and what happened when they saw him walk on the water? It says, Mark says they were utterly astounded. Why were they astounded at Jesus walking on water? Because they did not understand about the loaves for their hearts were hardened. And if you remember when I preached on that, they were astounded at Jesus walking on water because they didn't fully comprehend who Jesus was. The miracle of the fish and the loaves, it did not sink into their hearts. And neither did it here. Number four, he says, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Now, this is definitely the harshest of the eight questions by far. Why? Because who has eyes but does not see? Who has ears but does not hear? Who? Who is the church family? The lost. Jesus is asking them, do you hear and do you see as the lost world does? Five, do you not remember? Jesus is point blank asking them. He says, brothers, do you not remember when I fed the 5,000? Do you not remember when I fed the 4,000? Six, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? It's interesting that Jesus, he does not want to remind them of what they ate. He doesn't remind them of what they ate. He wants to remind them of what they had left over. Now, they remembered exactly how many they had left over. They said 12. They remembered exactly the number of baskets, 12. And then number seven, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they remembered that number as well. They said seven. So they did remember. They did remember. And number eight, do you not yet understand? Jesus expected his disciples to have greater understanding than what they did. We'll stop there with exposition. Application of the text. Number one. Just as hunger returns without fail, so does Jesus' compassion return without fail. 
Just as hunger returns without fail, so does Jesus' compassion return without fail. If there is one thing that is universally true of all humans, it is this. We are needy. And our needs never cease. That's true of all humans. We get hungry every day. We get thirsty every day. We get tired every day. We get sick every year. Some of us every month, some of us every week. Our bodies get older and achier every year. If there is one thing that is universally true of all humans, it is this. We are needy and our needs, they never cease. Never. And if there is one thing that is universally true of Jesus, it is that when he encountered these needs, he felt compassion. Every time. Just as hunger returns without fail, so does Jesus' compassion return without fail. You see, Jesus has already fed these crowds. He's already done this. He's already performed this miracle once. It's interesting, he didn't turn water into uh, 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 wine twice. But he, he performs this miracle twice. He would have been completely justified in the first instance to send them home. Remember, the disciples wanted it. They said, Lord, send them home to go get food or send them to the marketplace to get food. And Jesus says, no. He says, I have compassion on the crowd. You feed them. And so he feeds them. Now for the second time, the crowds, they're hungry once again. This time it's Gentile crowds. And if Jesus was justified in sending home the first group the first time, he would have been justified. He certainly is justified in sending these Gentiles home. But just as people's hunger returns without fail, so Jesus' compassion returns without fail. You see, we must not believe the lie that Jesus' compassion is like a battery. You know, you, you, have, you have your phone, right? The more you use your phone, the more it drains your battery, right? Some apps use it way more than others. You watch YouTube videos and all of a sudden your battery's like, you have 12%. You're like, what? The more you use your phone, the more it drains your battery. It only has so much charge. We cannot drain his battery. We cannot drain his battery. He is the power grid. Our needs and his compassion are not inversely related. It is not that the more we are needy, the more his compassion goes down. He's only got so much compassion. I have already asked him for this. I have already relied on him for this. I have been so needy this week or this year. God must be tired of me. God must be tired of me asking him for this over and over and over again. You see, our needs and his compassion, they are not inversely related. They are directly related. When our needs rise, what also rises? His compassion. They are directly related. We cannot drain his compassion. We see that in this story. Number two. 
we are prone to forget the power, provision, and protection of our God. We are all prone to forget the power, provision, and protection of our God. When you read the Old Testament, especially if you read the Exodus story, it functions like a mirror. Uh, God rescued his people out of Egypt. You remember in Exodus, he rescued them out of Egypt miraculously with 10 plagues. And as soon as they faced their first trial, the Egyptians are bailing down on them. Remember, they're caught between the sea and the Egyptians. They're bailing down on them. And what do they say to Moses? Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have led us into the wilderness to kill us all? They had just seen God rescue them. They had just witnessed 10 miraculous plagues. And the first time they come to a trial, they just forgot. This happened again. When God provided them water, remember when they come and they don't have water because the water is bitter? God tells Moses to pick up a log, throws it into the water, the water becomes sweet. And all of a sudden they have sweet water to drink. You read that and then two chapters later, just two, two chapters later, the people grumbled and they said to Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us with thirst? Do you not remember how he turned the bitter water into the sweet water? This is the pattern that continues all throughout the Old Testament. God's people are prone to forget. And even in the New Testament, when we read verse 4, right, where the, Jesus says the people are hungry and the disciples are like, How can one feed all these people with where could we get bread for this? Hello? Do, 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 you, do you guys not remember like just a few chapters earlier where I fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish? You see, the reality is when you read this story, I, I don't know about you, but maybe for, maybe for me, but um, it's very easy to critique the characters, isn't it? It's always easy when you read a story to critique the characters. But what about when you're the character? What about when it's your story? Do we not make the same mistake? I wonder if like the angels watch us and, and, and they watch me and they're like, Matt, did, did, do you not remember what he did two weeks ago? How many times have we witnessed God provide for us? God take care of us. God protect us. God persevere us. God sustain us. God help us. How many times have we seen God do these things? And then the very next time that a trial comes, we say, where are we going to get bread? How are we going to pay for this? How is this going to get fixed? How is this going to get resolved? How am I going to find strength to get through this? You see, stories like this are given to us to help us remember 
because we are so prone to forget. Three, do not merely look at your stomach for evidence of God's provision, but also look inside the basket. Do not merely look at your stomach for evidence of God's provision, but also look inside the basket. You see, this story teaches us that God will provide not only for our present hunger, but also for tomorrow's hunger as well. I've always wondered what was the significance of having leftovers in both of these stories. Because in both of them, they ended up with more food than what they started with. Both stories. In the first miracle, they started with five small barley loaves and two small fish. And they ended up with what? Twelve baskets full. And the second miracle started off with seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. And they ended up with seven baskets full. Now, what was the point of this? I think there are many reasons for the point of this. Here's one. To teach us that Jesus will provide not only for our present hunger, but also our future hunger. Tomorrow's hunger as well. You see, God does not want us to merely look at our stomachs, our full stomachs, and say, man, God provided today. He also in addition, wants us to look inside these baskets and say, he'll do it again. He will do it again. He will provide tomorrow as well. You see, grace comes to us not only when we feel the fullness of our stomachs, grace also comes to us when we look inside the basket and we say, God will sustain me tomorrow. God will provide for me tomorrow. Number four, those who demand proof in order to believe will never believe. Those who demand proof in order to believe will never believe. You see, the Pharisees came to Jesus seeking a sign. Now, one might ask, why didn't Jesus just give them a sign, right? Like if Jesus wanted them to believe, they asked for a sign. Why didn't he just do one? Why didn't he just say, okay, what do you want me to do? And if they said, levitate off the ground, why didn't he just do it? Just, just levitate. You happy? Do you, you believe me now? Why didn't he do that? Because Jesus knows that if their faith hinges on a sign, they will never believe. Jesus knows this. We know this from at least two biblical examples. Remember when God sent Moses to Egypt? Pharaoh said to him, prove yourselves by working a miracle. That's what Pharaoh said. What did, and what did he do? Aaron cast down his staff and it became a serpent. Ah, that's pretty miraculous. But Pharaoh didn't believe it. Why? Because he had his magicians do the same thing. Now, lest there be any confusion, even when Aaron's serpent swallowed their serpents, they still didn't believe. Second example, when Jesus cast out a demon who had made a man blind and mute, there was a man who had a, a demon, he was blind, he was mute. Jesus cast out the demon, and as a result, the blind man could see, the mute man could speak. So there's no doubting, right? Because you could say, well, well, I don't think he had a demon to begin with. 
right? They knew he had a demon. This man could not speak. He could not see. And now he can see. And now he can speak. What did they say? It is by the power of Beelzebub that he cast out this demon. You see, Jesus refuses to do an on-demand sign for the Pharisees because he knows that they will simply explain it away. Jesus is essentially saying that if you don't believe in the signs that I've already given you, you will never believe. Before he leaves this earth, he will give them one last sign. And it will be the greatest sign ever given to humanity. He will die. And he will rise from the dead, never to die again. And that is the sign. That is the only sign that Jesus will perform upon which our faith must rest. And if our faith does not rest in that sign, we will never believe. Do not believe the lie that people said, if God proved to me, if you need proof to believe, you will never believe. You will always find a way to explain it away. Always. Five. The disciples are a picture of what it looks like to be without the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The disciples are a picture of what it looks like to be without the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, this is partially a quote from 1 Corinthians 2.13. I love verses 15 to 16. I, 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 mean, I, I, just, I love it because it's somewhat comedic, but it's sadly comedic. Um, Jesus says to the disciples, he says, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, which is a very small parable because Jesus is clearly not talking about physical leaven. And the disciples' response is so funny to me. They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Now, I would have loved to heard that conversation between the disciples. I would have loved it. I just imagine like they, Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. And they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't, I didn't bring any bread. Did you bring any bread? No, I told Bartholomew to get it. I didn't get it. Guys, we had seven basketfuls left. Y'all didn't grab any of it? And Jesus the whole while sitting there just listening to this being like, probably wasn't that. I don't know. He, he might. He seems frustrated with them. How could they be so off? Paul writes, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. See, Jesus has not poured out his Spirit on the disciples yet. I mean, we can fault them, but let, let us, let's be clear. They do not have the Holy Spirit yet. And so the disciples are a picture of what it looks like to be without the Spirit. Now, why is that important? Why is that important? I point this out to say, here's why this is important. Because God does not intend for us to consistently read our Bible year after year after year and just be confused. I have, listen to me, if that's you, something's wrong. I have met Christians, some in this church, 
some members who read their Bible year after year after year, and they are just as confused as they were five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. That should not be the case. Because God has given us his Holy Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. God has given us his spirit that we would have understanding, that our understanding would not be like theirs. That when we read these kind of statements, when we read, and let, let, me, let me be very clear, the Bible is not easy to interpret, but uh, it, is, it is capable of being interpreted. That when we read this, we would have understanding. He wants us to have understanding. That's why he's given us his Holy Spirit. Number six. Watch out and beware of a forgetfulness that functions like a stiffening agent. Watch out and beware of a forgetfulness that functions like a stiffening agent. Jesus asked the disciples a very poignant question. He says, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Now, what is he asking that? Jesus is essentially asking them, do you understand on the level of the world? Do you understand on the level of the Pharisees? Because he's cautioning them. He says, beware of this type of understanding. Beware of understanding what I am saying to you the way the Pharisees understand it. Jesus wants them to remember. He says, listen, you need to remember what I've done in the past and rightly interpret it. Why? Because forgetfulness is like a stiffening agent in your heart blinding your minds, blinding your heart from seeing the truth. Listen to me. The natural state of the heart is not to be softened. In other words, if, if you come in here or if you come into any Christian setting and you leave and you forget everything that you have heard, your heart doesn't stay the same. Let me be very clear about that. Your heart does not stay the same. It actually gets harder. It actually gets harder. The natural state of the heart is not to grow softened. It's actually to harden. It's like a piece of clay. If, if you leave out clay, if I, if, I, if I were to go upstairs and take out some, I'll just do Play-Doh, to get some, upstairs get some Play-Doh from the kids' classroom. You take out some Play-Doh, put it on the table. What do you need to do to it to harden it? Nothing. Nothing it'll naturally harden on its own. That's the human heart. You don't have to do anything to make your heart hard. You don't actually have to harden your heart to have a hardened heart. Just do nothing. Which means forgetfulness functions like a stiffening agent. Jesus asked them, he says, do you not remember do you not remember? And then he asked them the same question twice to jog their memory. He says, how many baskets did you take up? Do you remember? And they do. They remember. You see, when you experience God work in your life, you look back over 2023, or you look back over the past five years or 10 years, when you experience God work in your life, don't let it pass in one side of your heart and out the other. 
you see God, you know, work in a way that like it's clear that God did this, right? Like this was not my effort. God did this. When that happens, don't let that pass in one side and out the other. Why? Because it'll make your heart hardened. Remember it. Take it in. Find ways to remember this. To remember his provision. So the next time when something happens, you'll remember. God will come through. God will provide. God will sustain. God will take care of us. Last point, number seven. It's a question. I have a question I want to ask us. Does God have expectations for the progress of our maturation? Does God have expectations for the progress of our maturation? Does he? I had a conversation with someone several years ago, and they told me this. Matt, I think you have too high of expectations for people's maturity. As a pastor. They said, I I think as a pastor, you have too high of expectations for people's maturity. To which I responded with, I don't have any expectations. I, I don't. But I think God does. To which they responded, well, I think God is okay with where people are. We are all on different paths and all on different journeys. And that's okay. Now listen, while I understand what this person was getting at, I really do, I understand what they were getting at, it does raise the question, does God have expectations for the progress of our maturation? And I want to posit that he does. And how I'm going to posit that is based on this little word, yet. Jesus says in verse 17, do you not yet perceive or understand? He says it again in verse 21, do you not yet understand? Jesus also uses it in Mark 4, 40. Why are you so afraid? Have you still, that word still, same word, have you still no faith? Now I point this out because there can be two extremes. Two extremes. One extreme denies or diminishes the idea that God has assigned different measures of faith, different gifting, and different measures of understanding. That's true. But one extreme is to deny that, to act as though we all have the same faith, all have the same gifting, all have the same understanding. Now, if that was true, we should all be on the same maturity level, right? That's true. One denies that. The other extreme, though, is to deny or diminish the idea that Jesus expected his disciples to better understand and to have more faith than they did. In Matthew, Jesus asked them, why do you, oh, you of little faith? I want to point out that it can be very tempting to say, you know, I'm, it's okay that I'm not as mature uh, because we're all on different journeys. Listen, in one sense, that's true. One sense, that's, that's absolutely true. That's gloriously true. But in another sense, be careful with that thinking. Because God might be saying, you should be here by now. And you're here. If you need another verse, many of you should be teachers by now. 
Hebrews, but you need to be taught the basic elements of the faith once again. Be careful with thinking that it's okay with where I'm at. God may expect you to be further along. May. We want the story to end on an encouraging note, don't we? Maybe like, like if I was like a, a traditional pastor, I'd, I'd bring this home with an encouraging note, right? We, we want the story to end on an encouraging note, but it doesn't end on an encouraging note. It ends on Jesus saying, do you not yet understand? That's how it ends. And so as we close out 2023, as we look forward to 2024, listen, I want to challenge you. I I mean this. I want to challenge you as I challenge myself. Make it a goal. Make it a goal that when we are in this position one year from now, 2025, January of 2025, if you're still in the church body, or even if you're at another church, make it a goal that one year from now, your understanding of the gospel, your affection for Christ will not be the same. It'll be greater. It'll be greater. Make it a goal to have the humility to say in the new year, when you read your Bible, have humility to say, I don't understand this. That's okay. But make it also a goal to say, I want to. I want to understand this.